0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Forward Thinking Podcast. It's Chrissy here from CS2. Uh, today we have a special guest, a very own Xander Broffle, who's our Director of Marketing Ops at CS2. Welcome, Xander. Hey, Probably the first of many podcast episodes, hopefully. Yes, yes,
1: absolutely. We were just saying this is my very first podcast, so looking forward to it.
0: <laughs> yeah, Not nervous Xander- at all. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, you're 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 natural for this, um, but yeah, Xander, um, how long have you been at CS2, Xander?
1: It's now been two and a half months. I want to say.
0: I know. I always think it's longer because Xander's made such an impact um, in such a short amount of time here at CS2, so it feels like longer. But um, today, I decided to have Xander on. I mean, there was a myriad of different things we could talk about, but I love this topic, and it's around designing a customer experience with the end user privacy in mind. I think right now everyone's maybe like seeing, you know, different things around how people, you know, want to, um, you know, have their privacy. I think a lot of uh, people with seeing things that have happened have realized that they haven't had any privacy. Um, And also um, just around the customer experience and the buyer journey, a lot of that experience is handled, you know, without even chatting to anyone. And I think that's mainly because people want to do all of that by themselves instead of being bombarded by a salesperson. So, so yeah, Sander's going to be on to kind of talk through that and also chat through different um, things that are affected, like opt-in and so forth. So, But before we do that, Sander, I'd love for you to um, just give a little quick recap cap of like your origin story, like how you got into ops, and all the way now to being a director here at CSU. Yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, I always love, I I love listening to the podcast, and I always love listening to everybody's kind of origin stories. Um, When I was growing up and and in college, I really wanted to be an actor. Um, And so like I had nothing in my mind about doing marketing operations, right, like (laughs) most of us. What I ended up doing is I moved into stage management, which was kind of all behind the scenes. It's very process oriented work in theater, um, but it was still too inconsistent for me for work. And so, you know, I was trying to figure out what what was the right place for me to go. Um, And I got into a software company, a a SaaS software company. This was about 10 years ago. Um, And. I was doing technical support. I've always kind of been a computer nerd, um, always played video games. I did uh, computer tech support in college. Um, And so I was doing support and eventually i did go and get an mba uh because i was tired of answering the question so you're a theater major what do you do with that um (laughs) so i I went and i got my mba and and the first thing that i did after i i got out of that program was i started working for our salesforce team as a business analyst and Hmm. so that's what kind of got me into marketing and sales and it was it was i wasn't a marketing ops manager at the time but i was partnering with marketing ops i was partnering with sales ops and just Over time, I started kind of slowly moving my way over into marketing operations, Um, and I've been working in this now for the last about four or five years um, with a marketing ops focus. But I've been working kind of that whole revenue stack for about six years. When Um, you got
0: your MBA, did, did did they have anything around marketing operations? Was that even a word that ever came up? ever?
1: (laughs) No, no, not at all. I mean, it's fun. I I took a marketing class, but it was PR advertising. You Mm -hmm. know, there was nothing about a funnel. There was nothing about, you know, attribution. There there was really no topics. It was very much like you want to go into marketing. Here's how you do advertising. Um, So I didn't think marketing was ever going to like, I kind of thought maybe marketing communications because I was a theater major. So I was always like very much uh, interested in communicating with people. But yeah, No,
0: (laughs) I just wanted to point that out because we talk about it a lot. And that's part of the reason why I think a lot of folks like fall into mobs. But, um, but yeah, so then when did you feel like, I I know you're at your last role, but what you, you know, you were kind of managing a lot of the marketing ops, like kind of revenue ops, but how, how did you kind of fall into, um, basically like becoming a director you are now but like what do you think were some of the tips for folks who like want to propel their career because like you had a very non-traditional path you know especially your origin and of course that you got an MBA but like I said it's not really giving you the 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 skills that you need to do mops but what were some of the things that really helped you like did you have a mentor did you do a lot of um I don't know, like shadowing people. What were some of those things that really propelled you?
1: Yeah, I I have a few like key moments when I first wanted to move into uh, the team that we had called it, that was like the Salesforce team. It was it was more like a business applications team. Um, mm-hmm. And there was a director position open for it. I had no qualification to interview for a director position, but I knew I wanted to do the work and I knew that I wanted to meet the team that was doing it. So I So I applied and I was totally not qualified for it. So the first thing that I always tell people is you've got to apply for things, even if you don't feel like you're the most qualified for it give somebody else the opportunity to say no, but don't don't put that onto yourself, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, through that, they really liked, you know, my mindset and where I wanted to go, but I didn't have the experience. Well, they moved somebody who was a business analyst into the director role internally. So then a business analyst role opened up and they, and they called me before they even posted it and said, are you interested in doing this? So like, mm-hmm. if I hadn't had that interview, I wouldn't have probably moved into that team.
0: Yeah. And so it's kind of cool, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, and then, and then the other thing that I would say is I was always looking for what opportunities existed in the company that I was in. Uh, it was Mm. a SaaS software company. I was there for almost nine years, which is a very long time, I think for tech SaaS companies, but I had like eight different roles in that time yeah, because I was always looking for, you know, is there something that the, that the company needs that I could fulfill? Um, I was never really going to my manager saying, Hey, I want something more, you know, you tell me what to do, I was keeping my eyes and ears open and trying to figure out where I might be able to provide value to the team. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. And I feel like, um, I mean, obviously served you really well. I mean, you really like when we were looking for another director, I feel like just overall your cons, like your overall understanding of like what needs to be done, but also having the technical, like, you know, knowledge of like, okay, how do we pair? The like what the user wants, what the end user wants, what your internal user, you know, it's like you understand like whole every part of it. And then how do we get that into it? Um, a technical setup. And and because really like how you do it is part of it, but really like what's going to really scale, what's going to meet the needs of the um the user and the company is the hard part. And you really understand that. Like, I feel like you have a really good way of like having that empathy also for the client and what they're looking for.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that that's where like having the business analyst background was really useful because I was always trying to gather requirements and really get to like what was really needed for the business. And then, you know, I also also think that like as a marketing operations leader, it's important that you're working across teams. So Mm -hmm. you're engaging with the finance team to understand what are the company goals to move toward? And, and, you know, it's not just focused on marketing, but we we have a unique vantage point of kind of looking at the whole business and figuring out where can marketing fit in.
0: Totally. Well, I feel like that's a good segue into what we're going to talk about, because one thing that I do think that, um, marketing ops folks, I think really need to Like focus on is the customer experience. I've said it like starting last year and into this year, but like really where marketing ops can play a big role is around optimizing the customer experience. And it feels like what that experience looks like and what that buyer journey looks like today is so much different. But also a lot of marketers their demand gen teams um, have Not really thought about it enough. Like they're really just have these goals and they're trying to meet these goals like MQL or trying to do these programs that they've done in the past that really like maybe meets 2010's um, needs, but really not 2022. So we want to chat through that. And I think part of that is also end user privacy in mind. That's what we're talking about. And I think not only from a privacy of tracking, but also maybe even the privacy or expectations of when they're going to be contacted. So can you talk through like what inspired you to want to talk about end user privacy? Like, and why do you think now is the right time?
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I've i always been really passionate about privacy and I think it's because I wasn't traditionally a marketer. Um, and mm. so when I started getting into marketing, I started realizing just how much data is out there about us. Um, and I think that... For the most part, our buyers are starting to understand that more and more, right? Um, mm-hmm. When the content or the context is right, I think that we are willing to give up a lot of privacy, um, but we're even meeting that to its limit, right? you you get what we were willing to share on Facebook 10 years ago, I think is much different than what we're willing to share on Facebook today, or at least we're more aware of what that really means. Um, yeah. And so when you're doing that for every single vendor that you're looking at from a, from a B2B or a B2C perspective, you're thinking about that in mind. If I fill out that form, I know what's going to happen. I'm going to get put into a nurture program. I'm going to probably get a contact from a salesperson and I'm not yet ready. Um, and so there's just a lot of risks to people not learning about your business. if. If you're only thinking internally and saying, "How can I get more leads? Or how can I get better attribution?" I know that we've been talking about that a lot yeah. on the podcast, and and it's just it's it's really about trying to meet our buyers where they're at, um, and providing that better experience. Um, you you had mentioned right away, like like thinking about the the customer journey. And I remember when I was starting in MOPS, I I only thought about my internal customers. You know, when mm-hmm. I said, okay, well, what is my customer experience? I was just thinking about digital, or I was just thinking about the SDR team. Um, and what one thing that did help to elevate me was to start thinking about our external customers and bringing that to the table. Um, because we 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 can play a little bit of a neutral tone if we're trying to figure out how to meet some goals, but still have that right buyer's journey in mind.
0: Totally. I, I think it's so true. I think when I think back on... Um, like our early, my early mop days, I was thinking about the customer experience, but it's always from like, how does this page look? Or <laughs> how are people going to find our form? What, How many fields are on the form? Or something like that. But it, when it came down to like anything other than aesthetics, like it was really just focused on like, okay, how are these teams going to like meet the goals that are put in front of them? Like how is the SDR going to pick up these all of these leads that they're going to follow up with and how are we going to like scale some of that and how are we yeah like going to nurture folks and when they come in and there was a little bit like I but then I learned over time especially with doing demand gen and mops at the same time I was like okay but really like what's going to be most like effective and, and when once you do start thinking about the customer like it you do then need to also bring a lot of your internal users on board with that. Like you have to kind of be the voice of the customer for a group of people who maybe aren't thinking about them. So I think to your point, like once you do make that change, like, and it's also just educating your internal users of like that mix of what's going to work for them, but also what's going to work for the end user. Because at, at the end of the day, that, that buyer and their experience it's what's going to actually meet our real goal which is our revenue target so (laughs) exactly yeah yeah um all right so when people are thinking about privacy right now or compliance and this is something that comes up a lot because i think for folks, they think, oh, privacy, that's just me like following the rules of like the law, like what's going to be compliant. Can you describe the difference for folks between privacy and compliance? And what does that mean? And why should marketers really care about privacy?
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh I laugh because as I'm thinking about this question, I'm going, okay, if there's any compliance officers or privacy officers on the, on the line right now, they're going to be like, you have no idea what you're talking about, but <laughs> I'll give you the, the, the perspective that I have around it. Oh yeah. Um, we can't and give, it's we're not giving out legal view, right?
0: advice on this podcast. <laughs> I just want to say that um, because I don't want anyone come going to their team and being like, well, CS2 told us this. So.
1: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so. I think that, I think that as, as you kind of, kind of put that lens of the customer experience on, compliance is what is the minimum viable product that you need in order to not get sued, not get turned off by the government, you know, meet your regulations, yeah. right? Um, hmm. And that is all really, really important, but it can just go up to the minimum. And when you start to think about privacy, now you start to figure out like, what does your end user expect? And mm-hmm. and and what's that level that you want to go to deliver a good customer experience that's respecting somebody's privacy, which we have a right to uh, as individuals, okay. right? Um, and so, you know, you have to make sure that everything that you have is going with compliance. But if, if we're working on a, a opt in project. Mm-hmm. we're not going to immediately go to the legal team and say, okay, legal team, what do we need to do for an opt-in project? We're going to start to think about what do we want the buyer's journey to be? How do we want this to to go? And now work with the legal team to make sure does this comply with the rules and regulations? So I kind of think of it as, as privacy is, is a little bit of a step up in terms of, you know, what are, what's the give and take that we're going to do to ensure that our end users are being respected. Um, from a privacy perspective.
0: Totally. And I think that it, like I like that you said that you're going to design something and then check with the legal team to see if it's going to be compliant. I think a lot of the times folks will do the opposite. They'll just go to legal and everyone has different legal advice And we see it at CS2 because we always say, okay, your legal team is probably going to tell you what appetite for risk that you want to take on how you want to do it, but we'll also give them advice on like, okay, this is a starting point of what we think is doable, but they'll always just like kind of side on, okay, what is legal going to tell us? And then let's design something after that. And I think that when also legal doesn't tell them what they want to hear or if it maybe feels like it's too limiting, then everyone tries to look for a little, uh, (laughs) you know, (laughs) ways to go around that. And I think a really good example was I was on a call um, last week just overseeing, like, a project for um, and talking to a sales development rep for outreach. And they're like, oh, we don't, you know, we don't include opt-in links. And these are sales emails. And I'm like, oh, Okay, well, coming from a system and also like I do think if you're emailing someone and you should probably give them an option to opt out. Otherwise, like they're probably going to mark you as spam. And he's like, oh, yeah, but they could just respond and like unsubscribe. And I'm like, well, I will tell you, though, that like when people don't see an unsubscribe, like a way to do it, you could do it in a certain way. Like they're probably going to mark you as spam and that not only affects your emails like getting to that prospect but it affects your emails getting to actual real prospects that want to receive your email so exactly it it was that aha moment where he's like oh I'm like oh yeah I didn't really think of it but but if you have them like think about okay what happens if you receive an email that's like that what do you do you
1: mm-hmm. know then
0: people really start to think about things a little bit differently like I said like when it's less around like what's kind of status quo or what's going to help them reach their Numbers. I'm using code, uh, quotes there. <laughs> um, then it really is different than when they actually put themselves in the end user shoes.
1: Exactly, and I think that I think that it is kind of a new. It's such a new thing for an SDR team. Yeah, that, that's now working in outreach. You know, like marketing's had years and years and years to figure it out, and it's only been a couple True. of years that people are like actively using those tools. So totally you know, it's, it, it's a different flex. And because it's coming from an individual, it feels like, well, this is a one-to-one communication. And it's like, but even if you were sending it out one-to-one, if, if it's unsolicited, it's unsolicited, you know, yeah. it, it, it's different than, Hey, we already have a meeting scheduled. Like this is now a conversation with two people who know each other. So.
0: Totally. Totally. So we talked about like opt-in and I, I, I love your suggestion of thinking of it, of architecting with the user in mind. But um, what about when we think about designing, like, a preference center for prospects, like, to choose, like, how they are marketed to or how their data is used? I think this is a great thing that marketers can have the ability to expand on, Um and also, instead of just getting a blanketed, like, I don't want to, like, be marketed to from you. like, give them the option. But also, I think a lot of folks are realizing, oh, I also want to control how my data is used. Yeah. Um, uh, what are some of your thoughts on that? Like, what do you think is, how can marketers maybe expand on that now, just knowing the, the given the end user's privacy in mind, but also the way that, you know, buyers are want to interact with marketing and sales?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, th- I think that, you know, preference centers have been around for a long, long time. Right. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I'm always curious as to how well they are actually executed on. I, cause most yeah. of the time when I see preference centers, it, it, it's usually, okay, I need to scroll down to the bottom to click on subscribe all, right? Yeah. And so, so in my mind, before you even go to the preference center, think about the content that you're trying to deliver. Mm -hmm. So that way you have a preference center that is designed around useful content, because in an ideal state, we want people to opt into our our marketing, not just implicitly opt in because they filled out a form. Right. But but we're delivering them value that they're interested in. Um, And and I think that all marketers are trying to do that. Uh, you know, I presume mm-hmm. positive intent that it's not just, hey, request a demo, request a demo, but, but we wanna provide value, right? Um, so making sure that you have a preference center that's aligned to content streams, I think goes a long way. Um, setting up your preference center, so that way, if you're a multi-product company, that you're really sending product information that's relevant to the needs of the individual, um, giving them uh, frequency options. A lot of the times, yeah. people don't necessarily want to opt out of your communication always, but they don't want a weekly email. Maybe they want a monthly email, and they just mm-hmm. want to digest, right? Um, and they're willing to stay on and stay communicated with, but they but they don't have it as frequent uh, as they used to. So I think that I think that you have content stream, you have frequency stream, and then you have kind of that like what is my real buying intent stream that you can implement into a a preference center that that can go a long way. And then it's making sure that all of your plumbing in your marketing automation system is set up to actually honor that. Um, Because I think that that's where I get a request of, hey, can I build a preference center? That's a very quick thing to do. It's just a landing page with some checkboxes. All of the plumbing to make sure that it's honored is what takes most of the work.
0: Yeah. And I think for, this kind of goes back to the, the last comment around like a sales engagement tool in marketing. But I think now marketers also need to think about ways of, Um, how to give people the option maybe to opt in or opt out of marketing or sales, like, and not just a blanketed unsubscribe or a blanketed, like, opt out. Some people also have preferences around the delivery of it. Like, you know, do you want SMS? Do you want email only? Do you, like, do you want to, you know, opt out of calling? And I think that's really thinking about the end user. because And also I think some people are like, oh yeah, we're going to start doing like SMS. It's like, well, you should probably get opt-ins first. <laughs> like you should probably yes. ask your prospects, do you want to like get a text message? Which in B2B like that, like I instantly don't assume getting one. So I think, but people might like it or want it depending on like what you're, how you're engaging and what type of content you're delivering like you said yeah. you know if you have a videos or podcasts or something like that like i'm sure maybe people would want to text about it but giving the option first or getting the opt-in first instead of just adding in this new channel and assuming that people can just opt out of it exactly
1: I think that that another piece of the preference center that that I recently had uh, was it was more B2C focused, but it was an email that said, hey, with Father's Day coming up, we're going to send some communications. And and we know that that's hard for some people. If you don't want Father's Day communications, Mm. click Mm -hmm. here to opt out. Uh, you know, you're not opting out of everything. We just won't send you our specific, you know, Valentine's Day, Mother's Day, Father's Day things that might not be well received by people. And and I'm like, that's going that level beyond that really matters. You know, it it shows that that organization cared about me, even totally. if it was just a automated email. <laughs> <laughs> but they had enough totally. forethought and em- and enough empathy to to reach out. You know. Yeah.
0: But the other thing that I reminded me of, because you talked about frequency and like the monthly, or like the monthly email versus weekly emails, it reminded me, um, I was just spending the weekend with my twin sister and she's not in B&B at all, not in marketing at all. And, you know, we talked, talked about email and she's like, oh, marketing, like I get so many emails. Like, why does it always have to be an email every single day or like so often? Like, um, and I think, I mean, I never really thought about, it. like, we think about that. But then I was like, okay, B2C, like, oh, yeah, you get spam, like, all the time, and you can opt out of that. But um, she instantly is like, oh, yeah, I need to go through and just remove myself from those lists. Um, but to your point, giving people the the frequency options is good. But I think yes. when, we come, when it comes to B2B, too, I think a lot of marketers spend a lot of time spinning their wheels on they, we do big email blasts for a new campaign. Then that goes into the nurture. Then you might have newsletters. Then you might, and this like on and on and on. Like that's a lot of work for a lot of email that maybe isn't even wanted anyways, yes. like that frequency. And so when I love that you mentioned, okay, pair with your content and then the, what, like, delivery system is going to work for that. And I think you can simplify things and it might actually have a better result. So if you do maybe do a, a weekly email that's with like new content coming up, that, that could be an option. And then, Hey, yeah, you could turn all of that into a digest and you just send that as like the last email of the month. And that's like your supercharged kind of like newsletter and then you just know okay our nurture we can take some of that content roll it into a nurture but that's your time to just say like oh new podcast coming up new you know content your events and you can have different versions based on a prospect or customer but to me that seems like less work than having four emails go out one for an event one for a piece of content one and you're hitting that person like four different times and it, in this day and age, I just feel like that's just the wrong way
1: to go about it. Yeah. And email is always thought of as like the very first thing to do, you know? Totally. And yeah. and it's accessible. Um, we're used to doing it. But yes, I mean, nobody wants to be the thing that's on the newsletter at the bottom, you know. And so <laughs> yeah. so if they're trying to if if one of their goals is to get so many people at an event, that that is gonna conflict. But but as a as a marketing team, you know, you have to come back as a, as a collective unit and say, I mean, ultimately, what is our goal? Is it to get people to the event or is it to get, you know, more revenue? It's to get more revenue. So we have to have that give and take conversation and figure out, you know, what's the right way. Cause if they unsubscribe that really accessible channel that we had to communicate with that potential buyer is now gone. So
0: totally. Yeah. You lose your chance anyway. And I think you bring up like, Okay, ch- email's like your one channel, and I think a lot of people just lean on it because like, oh, that's an easy channel. You say easy channel because it's true. It, it, it is easy when you think to to use. It can be mm-hmm. hard to nail down, like we said, to use the right way. But then there's other comms channels that are actually going to be better, especially for your buyers who are unknown. And you got to think about it, There's a lot of buyers that are not in your system. If anything, you have a system full of people that are prospective buyers, maybe people yeah. who are like added, you know, from sales or something like that. But a lot of the people doing those buyer journeys are doing it in places where your content can be sent out in different ways, communities on LinkedIn, you know, different social media channels. If you don't if you want to go outside of LinkedIn, there's, um, you know, sharing that in your partners, like, pu- like publications, make it just more available on your website. Um, yeah. and, and making that experience better. So, and consistency is key. And so, like, I just think if you create a user experience that's consistent but also is in a way where the, some of the person just feels like they're being getting value, not, like, being bombarded, um, uh, it, it would be a lot better. And I think, too, like, uh, when the privacy thing, I think, you know, when your name enters a database, you email from a company you don't even know, like, that's even another thing where I – that's where I know my privacy feels – like voided at that point. I'm like, how did you get my information? Why am I getting this email? Instant unsubscribe.
1: <laughs> yes, exactly.
0: Um, all right. So um, when it comes to privacy, obviously, personalization can be a bit hard. <laughs> So, how do you do things like personalize the experience for the customer and prospect while still giving them privacy? Cuz there's a lot of data that we have now from certain tools like Sixth sense and demand base and stuff like that, like on the on the customer just even when they hit the website. But how do you yeah. feel like you can do that in a way where it feels like less creepy but more um, that can improve the
1: experience? Absolutely. I think that I think that there's there's a couple of different areas. So first of all, let's just start with website, right? It's it's yeah. the it's probably the most like obvious way to go about personalization. Um, in general, I would recommend personalizing the buyer's journey. So if you have a six sense and maybe you have predictive scoring. And you combine that with an Uber flip or a path factory or, or optimizely or anything that can do some personalization. Can you start to serve up content that is not necessarily personalized to the company, but personalized to the buyer's journey so that they're going to be more likely to start to convert on the website because you know that they're in market or, or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so kind of going into that buyer's journey, it would be my first recommendation um, mm-hmm. because you're, you're, you're serving the the data like an Amazon is. Amazon's not saying, hey, Xander, do you want to buy this? They're just showing me things that I want to buy, right? Yeah. Um, but there is opportunity to kind of pull in some of that personalized um content and i would say like industry verticals or segmentation verticals so that Mm -hmm. maybe you're serving up white papers that have organizations that are all you know fortune 500s for your fortune 500s you're going to resonate a lot more um and then same thing if you if you're just targeting your small businesses showing them other small businesses can go a long way so there's ways to personalize and make that journey more tailored to that buyer without saying hey Xander from cs 2 mm-hmm. that makes mm-hmm. me go well you know one you're not gonna actually find that because I'm always on a VPN nowadays um, or <laughs> I have things that are blocking you know scripts mm-hmm. and stuff like that that's running on my browser or worse, I'm working from home and so like you know somebody else in that home has the same IP address uh, this happened with my wife and I I was getting everything from where she worked you know and it was <sighs> it was totally not actually the right organization anyway so you know that's what i would say is is really good ways to to personalize without being personal
0: totally i liked your idea of like yeah not try maybe trying to tie it like personalize it based on like the company per se but really like the like firmographics maybe of the company but first you said the the intent right like the customer journey stage because that gives you enough data to go on to say okay this is how we should craft this experience instead of like okay let's just craft this experience based on what we know about this person and try and make it look super cool and personalized but then to your point so a lot of the data especially with work from home is tough there but even if someone's working from home You're able to see if they have a ton of activity or maybe where they're in the buyer stage. Of course, some of that is tied to company too, but just I think thinking of it first as the like stage of the where they are or how much intent they're showing is a better like bang for your buck. Exactly, Um, and uncapitalizing on that, I think too. um, I, I forget if I mentioned this on a podcast in the past, but we were talking about. The buyer journey. I think it was with um with Arthur from Chili Piper. And I think for marketers as well, is like we can maybe focus like honestly, not enough attention goes into the experience of like your website, which yeah. is, you know, where a ton of that research is being done. And I, I think some people do, but it's like a web teams kind of think about it aesthetically or like, you know, just common best practices with like navigation. But that team needs to join join up with marketing ops or to mansion and really think about, okay, what's going to be the actual experience we want to show? And a lot of times the, time the requests are put in, go put up this white paper, put up a form, or go put up this event here. But that doesn't work today. Like I think you need to realize, okay, if someone came to our website and wanted to buy us, like how can we make sure that this like four pages or five pages – Real estate can really get them to go through that journey and then do it in a good way. That's why a Chili Piper, it's like, okay, by the time the person's ready to talk to you, don't screw that up as well. And that's part of the customer experience. But even before that, when they're doing their own research, like they want to watch a video, don't put a form in front of that video. Like you already lost them. Um, And so trying to make sure like, even if you don't get that person's information at all, how much can they really get about your company? What value you bring, um, in a way that makes sense to them, and just be easily like accessible and and be able to find that. And I think that would really you don't even need to personalize that. Just make it a great experience to start.
1: Exactly. Yeah. I and and kind of piggybacking on that, even for technical buyers, that that first part of the journey needs to be very simple. Your value yeah. proposition needs to be. Totally understandable on that first page, because if it's not, you know, no matter how technical somebody is, they don't have the context to get there yet, you can absolutely have technical documentation, you know, further into the website journey, but make sure that the very first part gives them a reason to say, I want to talk to sales or I want to fill out that chat bot or I want to do something that I'm going to give you my information for.
0: Totally. Also, this um, you mentioned attribution at the very beginning, and obviously trigger word for everyone on this podcast. We talk about um, attribution a lot, but I think that a lot of marketers can get bogged down doing the wrong thing because of attribution, right? Like, oh, how am I going to measure like when these leads are coming through? Like, oh, my MQLs. Like, I'm only how if I only have the demo request form, like. How am I going to know how well everything else is doing? And and there are ways you can get those insights in different ways that doesn't fit perfectly in a dashboard. But I think we we need to make it less about like what can be attributed. Because to your point too, like people will, you know, have cookie blockers. People, there's a mm-hmm. ton of things now that will make that imperfect. So I think it's a nice to have and it's things that can be directionally useful But when crafting this experience, knowing that people are going to do everything they can to not get contacted from your company until they're ready. And so making that all available and not getting too tied up in like, oh, we can't move to and we can't remove the gates from our content and things like that because we're going to lose our numbers or we're going to lose out on what content is really working for this team who's creating it. Like you can yeah. get those numbers different ways or you can be crafty in how you do it, but not I think the conversations around that being your limiting factor like really needs to be rethought
1: yeah yeah, I mean, I completely agree with that and and that that message resonated a couple of weeks ago when I was listening uh, to the podcast of just like don't let attribution get get in the way of the customer journey and the customer yeah. experience and it and it's just it's still true. um I would probably I always go back to I remember having a having a lengthy conversation with the head of our SDR team um at a previous employer and you know he's like, contact sales is what converts just give me more (laughs) contact sales you know and then and then the conversation was like i can't force more contact sales but like you can influence more contact sales you 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 provide that value you give that value away for free and then Uh you know with the data that you have today i'd say take a look like are white papers converting into revenue if not, then are you missing anything that they're that they're not becoming leads right away, or would it be better to give them all of the data that they need to self serve, and then say yes, now I'm ready to go talk to sales and have that higher percentage to convert? So it's it, it it's really tricky, and that's a difficult conversation to try and um, pioneer in an organization. You know, it takes a lot of convincing to to make that happen. I think.
0: Totally, yeah, it does. I think. Like uh, some marketers, I think, are also dealing like what even after making the changes, they're dealing with executives that like, oh, you have all these great results. But like our lead numbers down, like why we need more leads. And I think I was sh- talking about this example. I think someone's asking for mentorship on this and dealing with that um, that problem. And it just like killed me because it's like she listed out revenues up. You know, their conversion rate has quadrupled. All this stuff, like amazing, like their website traffic has spiked. Their time on page has like tripled. But yet, like showing all that and then the person managing that marketer said our lead numbers down, like go put a form on our price in front of our pricing. So if someone wants pricing, that to fill out a form. Yeah. <sighs> And it just kind of kills me a little bit because like some marketers trying to do the right thing, trying to do what's best for um, the buyer. And then it just comes down to we need more leads. And and,
1: uh, It breaks your heart.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it just breaks my heart. So I do think this is like an education thing. And I think you can still combat that with another like, okay, maybe, okay, let's do a test or yeah, like, even with all these things, like, just do tests, see what works, like, I I love doing tests to, um, I used to do it, especially early on at CS2, when we wanted people to do certain things, especially for email marketing, or things like that, and say, this isn't working for you, let's try something else, especially even, like, text-based emails, like, back in the day, when we used that over, like, highly styled emails, a client would be like, no, I don't want to do that, and I'm like, okay, well, let's just try it. Let's just test it, yes. and then we see over time. Okay, the test like worked, and then people can't really refute with those results. So, but then, so I think for marketers who are maybe feeling, oh, we're gonna get this pushback. I think it's always just like education, lead with results, have the data. It could also be qualitative data too. Like if you're talking to your customers, like do it before, see how the customer journey was for them before. And then take yeah. your new customers since you've made changes and, and interview them and see how that has changed and then compare like qualitative data is super valuable too And I think marketers are missing out on gathering that.
1: Yeah. And it's hard. I mean, we're, we're all held to short term goals, you know, totally. that's just business. Right. Um, but marketing is a long term play. And especially totally. marketing nowadays where it is so much more about education that it's hard to make that case when you know this is really going to pay dividends in 18 months So <laughs> it's so true <laughs> i
0: always use like the think of the podcast like that or with cs2 i think you know we started the podcast in 2019 we started some of our content during that time we took a pot like before went on maternity leave and came back and put more time into it but like, only now how have we, like, are now seeing... Like, we, we had a steady kind of growth over time, you know. But we've seen a, a lot of the success come, like, you know, later. Like, not, yeah. not within the first month. You know, we're now seeing it. And then now seeing people share it, our content, you know, on their own. Or talk about us on communities and things like that. And that's the marketing we want, right? We want to build a brand. We want people to really look to our brand to be engaging Want them to see us as the leaders. And in a way that's um, like not forced, it doesn't feel like we're just getting sold to. It feels like we're just garnering like trust. And so, I mean, we sell services. So obviously like that's a bit easier because we're, we're talking about the things that we consult on, but it's not much different if you're selling SaaS. like if you're talking right. about the value your, your content brings, if you're really giving them, like talking to your prospect and giving them insights on how to do their job better. Like that's all content that can be delivered. But to your point, it's a long game. Like that's a long, you need to have them try and build up your audience, get momentum. Um, And in these like short term goals, especially with funded companies that can be tough, but it's like stick with it. Otherwise actually you never end up seeing the success, I think.
1: Yes. Um, Yes, exactly. And I always just um, go back to who know who knows that topic better than the vendor. You know that totally. the vendor is spending hundreds of people, thousands of people, their entire workday trying to solve this problem. Like there's so much knowledge there to be able to share that can make your buyers more successful. You know, just yeah. share that. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, I just mentioned education, but any final thoughts on like what do you think that? what education you think needs to be done internally to help others understand that we have to be less reliant on like certain data or being able to track someone or capture them in a certain way in order to maintain like end user privacy. Like, because this could be something a marketing person could also partner with demand gen to even do a little lunch and learn or something. I think educating and getting people to think about the end user is super important. Like, what do you think would be some tips on there or some education points that you would suggest?
1: Great. Um, a couple of things. I I would I would start by trying to advocate privacy as a differentiator for you as an organization, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that might start with the leadership team and just trying to build a culture of um, of embracing privacy and then celebrating that, right? Um, if somebody's opting in, send them an email indicating that they've opted in and that you respect their privacy that, that immediately builds trust and rapport with your end user. And you can use that, you know, if, if your competitors aren't doing it and they're doing research, that's going to be something that's going to potentially stick out. Um, so, so really starting that, that, that leadership conversation and making sure that there's buy-in to, to build out privacy. Um, Educating on the persona, the one thing that I didn't that I didn't mention that I wanted to was you have the golden rule of treat everybody how they want, how you want to be treated. I always try to go with the platinum rule of treat others how they want to be treated. (laughs) If I'm a marketer, I'm going to be much more likely to accept other marketing messages than if I'm a security persona or if I'm a developer persona or if I'm an HR persona. So it's really like partnering with whatever team is responsible for understanding your personas and really trying to get into their, their empathy of Mm -hmm. empathizing with those people um, to to align with with their privacy expectations, and then taking that data and sharing it with the broader team. So all of a sudden you're taking something that is going from like, oh, I'm losing the ability to capture more leads potentially to, oh, I'm going to come forth with a message that's really going to resonate with the persona. And I'm going to do something as simple as just respecting their privacy to set ourselves up um, as a differentiator between two different competitors.
0: Yeah, I love that. I I think also, too, I see this um, sometimes with marketers who will have a, be successful with a certain strategy at one company, then move on to another company with a totally different buyer, different persona, try and do the same thing, and then wonder like, oh, why is this not working? And it, it's like, it's totally, you need to think about your persona too. I think so many companies do, you know, research on the the user of how they can use the tool and what pain points and so forth. And you do need to think about that too when it comes to, okay, our end user and this persona, how do they like to be marketed to? Like how, and you can maybe try and do that research yourself, talk to other marketers in the space too. That's a great thing about doing network. Maybe talk to people who aren't your competitor, but like someone working in the space, Um, have chats with them. Um, But also like, like I said, do qualitative research, ask your customers, like have more conversations with them and, your customer advisory board, they're going to give you so much wealth of knowledge of like how, what, how they like to ingest content, what they are really looking for, what's valuable to them. And then make that case. Like it's a lot different, maybe marketing to a marketer versus someone who's in it or security, you know? Like, um, and so definitely do the research, like as part of your job. um, And maybe even across the whole marketing team, just all getting on the same page of like, okay, this is, Maybe they everyone needs a platinum rule slide, but like this is how our <laughs> our prospect actually wants to be marketed to or treated. So, um, but yeah, um, I thought this was a great episode, um, Xander. I think this is these are all the things I think folks, whether you're marketing ops, demand gen, partner marketing, customer marketing, like all need to hear. Um, but. But yeah, I, for those of you who don't already follow Xander on LinkedIn, he posts a lot of great content there. So we'll be linking out uh, Xander's um, LinkedIn profile. So to connect with him and shoot him a note and say hi, I'm sure he's going to want to uh, I would appreciate connect that. With yeah. You. <laughs> um, but yeah, I feel like this is the first of many uh, future podcasts. I'm um, always awesome to have you um, talk to you, Xander. I mean, I get the pleasure pretty much every day, but. Having everyone um, hear from you and get your insights. So thank you so much for being on the podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me on. I appreciate it. Awesome.
0: Well, if you enjoyed this episode of Forward Thinking, feel free to share it with your friends and colleagues. And um, we love getting reviews. So on your podcast player, feel free to write us a review. We really appreciate it. Um, and we'll see you next time on Forward Thinking. Have a good one.